Thanks, Martha. Um, let's pray, shall we, as we come to reflect on this bit of God's Word. Father, thank you for this, this whole chapter we've been looking at these past Sunday mornings. Please help us now um, to hear the Lord Jesus speak to us in the way that, that we need to hear. Um, help us to uh, feel the force of his words in a way that would ultimately uh, help us to know uh, the depths of his grace uh, and to show it ourselves. And we pray in his name. Amen. Uh, well, morning, everyone. Do keep your Bible open there uh, at page 985. And I wonder if you've ever felt this, that it's possible to be in a situation without realizing just what kind of situation you're actually in. Uh, the young woman who goes out for coffee with a male friend, uh, just a coffee in her mind, and later she gets a text message, oh, I really enjoyed our date. What? That was a date? What? It's not the situation that appeared to her. Uh, someone who's taken out to lunch, and for them, it's, it's just a nice lunch. Um, and they're oblivious to the fact that you know, they're on a job interview, really. Um, uh, and only later does it dawn on them that was the situation. It can't be more serious. Uh, two summers ago, Hannah and I went uh, whitewater rafting in California. Uh, there were maybe 80 of us spread across uh, a few rafts, um, and uh, the rapids were pretty big. And when we got to this particularly strong section of rapids, uh, uh, our guide, there was a guide in the boat with us, our guide told us uh, that he was going to put us at the front of the queue to go through the rapids first. Um, and the reason was that our raft had a fairly healthy bunch of people um, and our guide said he wanted us to go through the rapids first so that we'd be waiting at the end to rescue anyone who fell in when they were going through the rapids. But he assured us it never happens, that in all his years of rafting, nothing had ever gone seriously wrong. So we went through the rapids, uh, and we waited uh, to see the other rafts coming through, and we were just chit-chatting and passing the time until our guide blows his whistle and starts yelling at the top of his voice, rescue, rescue, because we see coming towards us not a raft full of people, but person after person after person in the water, followed by an upside-down raft. Now, thankfully, everyone was okay, but we pulled two children into our raft, um, and what struck us was that these kids just immediately got on, um, you know, uh, giggling and, and uh, messing around as, as children do. Uh, I guess they thought, that was fun. That was exciting, wasn't it? And it didn't seem to dawn on them what had just happened. What could have happened? That the situation they'd been in was life and death. Well, why do I mention that? I mention it because Jesus says you and I find ourselves in life and death situations, though they may not appear that way to us. The family member who snubs us says something unkind, and we want to get even. The colleague who's always criticizing, we find out they're gossiping about us behind our backs. The person at church you've fallen out with because of how they've treated you. Stuff that happens all the time. Well, Jesus says those are life and death situations. And how we respond could be the difference between life and death. 
We've been seeing how Jesus defines greatness from Matthew 18. In verse six, Jesus says, don't cause others to sin against God. Uh, Then Jesus says, go after anyone who wanders away into sin. But more personally, Jesus raises, well, what if they sin against you? That was verse 15. And Jesus' disciple, Peter, Peter senses that forgiveness must come into it. Uh, And Peter's a guy who asks the question everyone else is wondering about, but is too afraid to ask. Sitting around the dinner table, and that person who asks, is there seconds? Uh, Peter's that guy. And Peter asks Jesus, so how many times must I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? Which actually is quite a lot. The rabbis of Jesus' day taught that three times uh, was how many times you had to forgive. But verse 22, Jesus says, forgive them not seven, but 77 times, which is a way of saying no limits. Jesus' followers are to put no limits on the forgiveness they show. In other words, however many times someone wrongs us, Jesus says we must forgive them. And when you hear that, all sorts of things come to mind. That's so hard. How can we forgive people whatever they do? Or more specifically, how can I forgive that person after what they've done? Why should I forgive? It's the last thing they deserve. I can't forgive. I won't forgive. Those sorts of things come to mind. And Jesus knows us. So he finishes this chapter on greatness with a great warning. And as with all his warnings, Jesus warns us because he wants to keep us safe, that in his goodness, he wants to guide us away from death and into life. Well, three things from Jesus' words. First, why we need to forgive. Second, what is forgiveness anyway? Uh, And third, how is it we can forgive? So first, why do we need to forgive? Well, Jesus wants us to see what unforgiveness leads to. Verse 35, take a look at that. Last verse of Matthew 18. We skip to the end of a story where an unforgiving person is thrown into prison to be tortured. And verse 35, Jesus says, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Blunt stuff. Now, if we don't forgive those who wrong us, it does cause all sorts of problems. Our relationships suffer. When people don't forgive each other, then families and friendships and churches fall apart. Our society suffers. The fear of being canceled for something you've said or done, and there's no way back. And we suffer if we don't forgive. Anger and bitterness eat away at us. These are big problems. But even bigger, Jesus says unforgiveness has eternal consequences. That in eternity, if we've withheld forgiveness from others, then God will withhold forgiveness from us. And to show us why, Jesus tells this story. It starts with a serious debt. A king wants to settle accounts. And verse 24, a servant owes him 10,000 talents, or bags of gold. Now, that is off the charts. Um, 
the average laborer might get one bag of gold for 20 years of work. And this servant knows 10,000 of them. 10,000 times 20 years. We're talking billions of pounds. An unpayable debt this guy owes. And unable to pay, the servant faces being sold into slavery to work off a tiny fraction of his debt. So verse 26, the servant fell on his knees before the king. Be patient with me, he begged, and I'll pay back everything. So here's this man with a debt he can never repay, begging the king. And what does he receive? Scandalous grace. Verse 27, the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Now that is scandalous. It's actually so much more than the servant even asked for. He asked the king, be patient with me, give me time, and I'll get you the money. Which of course he could never do. It's an unpayable debt. However long he had, the debt would ruin him. And so the king takes pity and cancels the debt, wipes it away. So much more the servant than the servant asked for. And by the way, this debt doesn't just vanish into thin air. Um, very likely, this king had appointed the servant to manage his money. It's his money on the line. And so when the king cancels the debt, he's the one losing billions. The king bears a massive cost to forgive the debt. It's scandalous grace. And you ask yourself, what effect should that experience have on a person? How should this servant respond to the grace of the king? Which brings us to verse 28. When that servant went out, debt forgiven, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. Now, that is not nothing. It's about three months of wages, so it's a significant amount. But compared to the vast debt the servant owed the king, it's, it's nothing. Just one of the 10,000 bags of gold was worth way more than 100 silver coins. And yet he grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. Now, isn't this interesting? This servant has just come from kneeling and begging before the king. And it's like he finds himself back there, but now with the rolls flipped, standing over a servant, kneeling and begging with the exact same words he just used, be patient with me and I'll pay back everything. He's now in the position of the king. And does he show mercy like the king showed him? No. No, he throws the other servant into prison to pay off his vastly smaller debts. Isn't it scandalous? Isn't it outrageous? No other the, uh, the underservants are outraged enough to go tell the king and so we're glad when this unforgiving servant faces serious consequences, put in prison until he pays off a debt that he'll never repay. Because verse 32, how he treated this fellow servant was wicked, wasn't it? Terribly wicked. Verse 33, he should have had mercy, like the king showed him mercy, shouldn't he? How dare he withhold forgiveness when he'd been forgiven so much more? It's right the king throws him in prison. And then you realize what Jesus is doing. 
because here I am booing the villain, glad to see him get his comeuppance. And then I realize this is me. This is what I'm doing when I won't forgive someone. And this is what I deserve. Do you see that? Because I owe the king an unpayable debt. However others sin against me, my sin against God is infinitely greater. And in view of my sin and his scandalous forgiveness, how dare I withhold, uh, hold against someone the vastly smaller debt they owe me? If I do that, then I'm like the servant in this parable. See, it's like Jesus says we have a choice. You can either live by payment or by pardon. If sin is like a debt, then we owe a debt to God, others owe debts to us. And faced with those debts, you can either live by payment or by pardon. And when others sin against us, it's natural to want to make them pay. But Jesus is saying, if you live by payment, you will always owe much more than you are owed. And I get that if we've been the victims of, of sin, uh, if someone sinned against us, we might be thinking, well, why do I have to forgive? I've been sinned against. I'm in the right here. Uh, they should pay. And I don't want to minimize the, the real evil uh, uh, that we might experience from others. But ask yourself, what if God took that attitude to us? Why do I have to forgive? I'm the one who's been sinned against. Uh, they're the ones in the wrong. They should pay uh, with the vastly bigger debt we owe him. We wouldn't want that. Friends, Jesus is warning us that God will not forgive the unforgiving. And so we must forgive. We must. Church family, I hate the thought of wrongly unsettling any of us. But how do you think people felt when Jesus spoke verse 35 in the silence afterwards? I imagine they felt the force of it. We must hear this warning from the Lord Jesus who loves us. We don't want to arrive in eternity and hear those words, shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Forgiving is costly, but if we hold on to, un on to unforgiveness, it'll cost us much more. So that's the first thing. Jesus says we must forgive, which raises the question, well, what, what is it Jesus is calling us to? What, what actually is forgiveness? Good for us to be clear on that. Well, some things that forgiveness uh, is not. It's not pretending that you haven't really been wronged. Pretending to them, don't worry about it. It's okay when it's not okay. Um, trying to make yourself feel that how you've been treated was all right. No, forgiveness assumes there's been genuine wrongdoing. There is something to forgive. So it's not inconsistent with forgiveness to recognize you've been wronged. That's part of it. And you can genuinely forgive someone and still remember that and feel the pain of it. Also, forgiveness doesn't mean there are never consequences. If someone uh, commits a crime, 
They may well go to prison, though their victim genuinely forgives them. And forgiveness doesn't mean relationships are never impacted. Someone may genuinely forgive an abusive partner, uh, but wisely maintain some distance. Forgiving someone doesn't necessarily mean trusting them. And even when full reconciliation isn't possible, um, maybe the other person doesn't agree uh, they've wronged you, um, or they passed away years ago, even then, we seek to forgive them from, from our hearts. But of course, it's possible to twist all of those. I keep dredging up how they've wronged me to myself, uh, to others, to them. I'm glad they face consequences, vengefully, instead of wanting the best for them. I'll never trust them, whatever they do, to try to regain my trust. And I hope no one ever trusts them. So what is forgiveness? Well, in this story, Jesus shows us what forgiveness is. When someone sins against you, Jesus says, it's like they go into your debt. And unforgiveness says, pay what you owe me. Like the unforgiving servant. That's what comes naturally to us. Forgiveness. That's in verse 27. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Forgiveness is canceling a debt. The person who sinned against you and owes you a debt, instead of making them pay, you cancel it. That's forgiveness. You cancel the debt. So we don't make them pay. Uh, responding with anger holding a grudge, uh, bad-mouthing them to other people, uh, wanting them to be miserable for how much they've hurt us, uh, giving them the silent treatment uh, until they're sorry enough. That's making them pay, isn't it? Forgiveness means you cancel the debt, and instead of holding it against them and wanting them to suffer, you want the best for them. Now, canceling a debt is always costly, um, silly example, imagine you lent me a vacuum cleaner. Um, I asked if I could borrow one, and, and you lent it to me. And I'm so hapless with vacuum cleaners, uh, I managed to break it. It's unusable. This might not be a completely imaginary scenario, um, by the way. Well, if I offer to pay for the vacuum cleaner, and, and you say to me, you know, don't worry about it, um, it's fine, the cost doesn't disappear, does it? You, you bear the cost, like the king when he canceled the debt, he, he bears the cost. And when someone sins against you and you refuse to make them pay, it's, it's like you pay instead. You absorb the cost for their debt. And then remember how many times Jesus says, we have to do this, 77 times, which means unlimited, but if we just take that number, that's 77 different people wrong you, uh, in context, it's probably fellow Christians um, Jesus has in mind. He, he expects relationships in a church family to go wrong sometimes. And what are we to do? Cancel the debts. Or the same person sins against you 77 times. Same Christian. What are we to do? Cancel the debts. Or that old hurt, which you did really forgive in the past, but now the anger's coming back. 
And forgiveness seems to be both an event and an ongoing process of forgiving the debt, forgiving the debt, forgiving the debt. And none of that is easy. But we must do it. And so finally, how is it that we can do this? How can we forgive? Well, here's my best try to sum it up. Forgive from your heart by taking to heart God's forgiveness of you. Let me say that again. Forgive from the heart by taking to heart God's forgiveness of you. See, here's a question. What needed to be different for the unforgiving servant to show mercy? He needed to appreciate the grace of the king. Imagine how differently things would have played out if he did. Imagine if he grasped that he really did owe an unpayable debt. Um, He didn't get that, by the way. He thought this was a debt he could repay. He didn't think his debt was that big. But imagine he got that he owes the king an astronomical debt. And so imagine he grasped the scale of the king's grace and the vast cost it cost the king to forgive him. If he got that, if that had sunk into his heart, then when he found his fellow servant, what would he have said? Don't be silly. I forgive you. How couldn't I? How could I make you pay when I've been forgiven so much more? That was his problem. He wasn't amazed at the grace he'd been shown. And so it hadn't changed his heart to be gracious to others. And church family, it's the same for us. What is the gospel? The gospel is that because of our sin, we were in debt to God for more than we're worth. But because of God's pity, Jesus absorbed the debt and canceled it for us. If we get that, if we sing from our hearts amazing grace that saved a wretch like me, it will make us into forgiving people over time. The problem is when we're not amazed by grace, when it's just all right grace that saved a pretty decent person like me, grasping neither our infinite debt uh, or the king's scandalous grace. And if you feel a tendency to that in yourself, let me finish with this. When people sin against you, can you imagine responding with pity? In other words, rather than being angry for what they've done to you, being sorry for what their sin does to them. It's hard to imagine responding like that when sin against, isn't it? But even so, brothers and sisters know this, It is how the Lord Jesus responds to you. The king took pity on his servant. And the Lord Jesus, the king of all, looks on sinners like us and takes pity. Pity that isn't extinguished by our unpayable debt, but that took him to the cross to pay it for us. The one most sinned against gave his life to forgive us out of pity and he pities us still. What a gracious God we have in him. Let me lead us in a prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the king who pities sinners like us with a debt we could never repay. We pray, please, amaze us with that. Thrill us 
uh, with the scandalous grace you've shown us so that in turn uh, we grow to be forgiving from our hearts uh, those who sin against us. And we pray it uh, for your glory and for our good. Amen.